are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. May I have your attention? I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs for the Pratt Library, and uh, we're really excited to have Winona Houter back here in Baltimore again. Uh, this program is being uh, sponsored by the Pratt Library as part of our Writers Live series, and also by Food and Water Watch. Um, the Ivy Bookshop is here with copies of um, Winona Houter's new book, Fracopoly, and you can get a copy and have her sign it after the program. Um, joining me up here is Thomas Meyer, who's the senior organizer for Food and Water Watch in Maryland, and he's going to do the honors this evening. Thomas? Thank you. Are these two microphones? Wow. Um, yeah, so my name is Thomas Meyer. I'm the senior Maryland organizer at Food and Water Watch. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about our campaign to ban fracking here in Maryland and the other work we're doing here after the talk. Um, but yeah, just wanted to say thank you to everyone for coming out. I'm really excited to have Winona here to talk about um, her book and the history of the fracking industry and the work that Food and Water Watch has been doing. Um, she'll get into this a little bit, but I can just brag about Winona. She's been in working for the public interest, fighting for the public interest for most of her life and started Food and Water Watch back in 2005. We just had our 10-year anniversary um, and has been kicking butt um, all these years and uh, really proud to, to work for Food and Water Watch. And you'll hear a lot about the work we've done on fracking. Um, on the issue of our campaign in Maryland, we'll have a table out here next to the books. Um, be sure to sign our blue postcard petition to ban fracking in Maryland. Uh, we've got a bunch of other materials. We have some of our other staff members here to talk about our other work as well. Um, actually, if you guys want to just stand up, raise your hand so people can find you. So Emily Worth is our water program director and can talk about all things water and fracking. Michelle Merkel is co-director of our Food and Water Justice, our legal arm, and works on a lot of factory farm and, and ag issues. Mitch Jones is in the back and is our lobbyist in Maryland and works on all other things. Is Michelle still here? No. Oh. Oh, Mary. Mary took off. Okay. We'll talk to those guys. Um, but we'll be out here at the big blue Food and Water Watch table afterwards. Um, I think with that, we'll kick it off. No wonder hotter. So there are a lot of pipelines being uh, built uh, all across the country. Now, we already have 2.5 million miles of natural gas pipelines. And that's a way undercut. Uh, these are interstate lines. Uh, there are many intrastate lines. Most states don't track uh, these lines, and uh, we know that a lot more of them are being built. But we do know that we have enough lines right now to go around the Earth a 100 times. So a, uh, a lot of pipelines. And 
I think that one of the things that we don't think about but should in a state like Maryland and a lot of states is that fracking grow food, agricultural areas, and industrializing them. And I think in part this has happened because it's very difficult to make a living in agriculture anymore. And so uh, the uh, oil and gas industry can waltz in and uh, um, basically not tell farmers and other landowners the truth and um, sell mineral rights. But really we should be thinking about that Oh, yay, okay. Now let me get to the right slide. Okay, it's a little dark, but we'll just live with it. So uh, this is some of the industrialization. All of the trucks, every well requires a thousand truckloads of materials. And this is on back roads that are being destroyed, and we've seen this in states like Pennsylvania. This is one of the uh, sand mines I had mentioned. And, um, and one of the other impacts that we're beginning to hear more about are the oil train accidents. So this is a recent accident that took place in Oregon uh, in June, and the oil coming from the Balkan, from uh, North Dakota, where we uh, um, have the uh, Standing Rock camp fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yay. That oil is not only going to move in pipelines, but in these uh, um, car trains, which is very, very dangerous. And um, a lot of these trains, bomb trains, are going through urban cities, and there could be a very serious accident if something like this happens in a, an urban area. So. That's kind of the 101 on fracking, and I know you already know a lot about fracking, but I want to turn to some of the history now, um, because I think we should know how we've ended up with this state of affairs that we're living with today. And I always like to begin with uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, because Thomas Jefferson tried to insert into the Bill of Rights freedom from monopoly. And of course, Alexander Hamilton and the Federalists opposed this, uh, and it did not end up into the Bill of Rights. And many times over the past 200 years, there has been a debate in this nation about a particular economic group or industry having too much political power. I don't really think Thomas Jefferson was concerned about consumer prices. I think the concern was about political power. And today we have an industry with so much power that it is able to um, write uh, the rules that are going to govern the future. And that's what I want to spend uh, um, the last part of my talk um, really discussing. So it turns out, and I'll talk about this in a minute, that there is a, a relationship 
between many of the institutions today, uh, the media, the financial services industry, uh, trade associations like the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, there are interlocking boards of directors. There are all sorts of financial relationships. And these are particularly strong between the financial services industry and uh, the oil and gas industry. And uh, I think that is one of the problems that isn't always recognized. Also, the media. We know that if we had uh, a media that really covered um, current events honestly uh, on a lot of issues, but we're talking about fracking tonight, that people would not support it and they would be in, there would be an uproar about climate change. Um, but since the 1980s, when the real consolidation in the uh, media began accelerating, there were about 50 major media outlets in uh, 1984. Today we have six. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's really uh, put us where we are today. So I kind of want to go back to the beginning of the oil and gas industry with John D. Rockefeller. You know, it's ancient history for uh, for most of us. But uh, Rockefeller had rolled up the oil and gas industry by uh, 1890. Of course, oil was very important uh, before the turn of the 20th century because um, it was refined into kerosene that was used for lighting. Everybody needed kerosene. Rockefeller and his lawyers and advisors figured out how to run his competitors out of business and to uh, collude with the railroads in transporting kerosene and to have very, very high, high prices. There was a lot of anger towards uh, uh, Rockefeller. This is an illustration in a magazine um, in the early 1900s. And uh, that creature is uh, standard oil, Rockefeller's company, and uh, you see that it has its tentacles around uh, the White House and a state house. And uh, what happened as the anger grew about the Standard Oil Trust is, as most of us learned in high school, that Teddy Roosevelt was a trust buster. Uh, the federal government sued Standard Oil, and that's pretty much what we learn um, or learned as uh, students. Well, that's just the beginning of the story, because what actually happened is that the Standard Trust directors, including Rockefeller, were given the opportunity to write the plan for their brain. Up. And so Standard Oil was broken into several baby standards, uh, and I'm going to be using the modern names of these companies because the baby standards are with us today, and they had a major impact on public policy throughout the 20th century. So one of the baby standards was um, Exxon, or Exxon today. It received about 50% of the value in, uh, of the Standard Trust. Um, there were um, some other very powerful standards. Um, standard of New York Mobile. Uh, many of you are old enough to rem remember Mobile, and I'll get into this more in a few minutes where these companies ended up. Standard of California, Chevron, and Standard of New Jersey was Exxon. 
Um, and I want to say that a year after Standard um, was broken up, uh, according to this plan, Rockefeller's uh, value in uh, wealth increased by 20%. The directors met for lunch every day in uh, Manhattan, and they continued uh, to work together. Meanwhile, there were four other companies that were formed that had a major impact on the history of our country and even energy policy today. Uh, Gulf and Texaco, they have their own story that we don't have time for today, uh, but also formed by um, some very powerful um, men, uh, and they've been absorbed now in um, uh, some of these um, companies that exist today that are, have been consolidated. And in a little while, I'll show you a slide of where Gulf and Texaco ended up. And then two com companies that are uh, European, so BP and Shell, which, of course, both uh, almost uh, from the beginning had very large uh, U.S. Uh, subsidiaries. So these seven sisters, and they were called the seven sisters because uh, they were they were compared to the Greek uh, mythology, uh, where Atlas's seven sisters. Um, thought like cats and dogs unless one of them was attacked and then they all rallied around. So these uh, powerful oil giants were nicknamed the Seven Sisters. And they had a major impact on every uh, regulation through the 20th century into uh, today. Now, uh, one of the things that they did, and this is um, the presidents of the three largest sisters, so I'm, remember I'm using their modern names, Exxon, BP, and Shell, they met at a castle in Scotland in 1928 to continue their plotting, because from the beginning these companies wanted to uh, keep production down and have high prices. That's what their goal was uh, in, the, in the most of the 20th century. They wanted to be able to to uh, charge as uh, much as they wanted. So they got together at this castle and came up with a set of principles uh, by which they would uh, fix prices and uh, collude together uh, in the coming years. And uh, they brought the other smaller companies in on this. Um, and their big concern was that oil had been discovered in Iraq, a lot of oil. And uh, they were afraid that it was going to flood the market, and they were interested in working together to make sure that didn't uh, actually happen. Now, while all of these bad things are going on in the 1920s, uh, I want to bring in another industry who is a partner. It's a partner industry, and certainly today an important partner. Partner, so bear with me, a little ancient history. Samuel Insull was an uh, electricity and gas baron, and uh, he uh, owned a, an empire of um, electric utilities, and they also, some of them, uh, sold natural gas. 
And he not only had this empire, a very large empire, that had a holding company um, structure. So a holding company was another name for a trust. Have to keep modernizing uh, these names. Today we call trusts and holding companies multinational corporations with a parent company and a lot of subsidiaries. Anyway, uh, he figured out how the parent company could milk the profits out of these utilities, and then he set up um, many investment firms that sold the stock to these companies over and over and over again. This is one of the behaviors that different industries engaged in that brought on the Depression. Now, I mention this um, because there were a lot of people very angry, including the um, about 800,000 investors who lost their shirt and all of the people who were getting their energy from those 5,000 utilities. So when FDR came into office, there was a lot of pressure to do something about this bad behavior of the electric industry, electric and gas industry, and they passed a law called the Public Utility Holding Company Act. Um, most of you probably never heard of this act. It's since been repealed in modern days. But what it did is it limited the size of electric utilities, said they couldn't gamble with investors' money, said they had to open their books to the Security and Exchange Commission, and limited the territory that they could have to contiguous areas um, and a few other things. This infuriated the electric utilities utility industry, and for the next, um, well, 40 years, um, they fought this rule, and uh, including red-baiting uh, the commissioners uh, that were involved in this. Uh, a couple of years after this uh, public utility holding company of 1935 was passed, there was a similar bill um, passed to uh, regulate the natural gas industry. And uh, the reason was that the natural gas industry was ripping off consumers. And so um, the Federal Power Commission, an existing agency, was giving the, given the task of regulating the price of gas and uh, making sure that it was uh, based on the cost of producing gas and a fair profit, which was between 5.8 and 7% during the next several decades. Um, the gas industry despised this and uh, worked uh, to get rid of this um, regulation of natural gas, all important to our story today on fracking. Um, just want to mention that during World War II, many of the technologies that allowed the oil and gas industry to grow, expand, to pipe long distance were um, developed to win the war, and it had a major, major impact uh, on the oil and gas industry. These two pipelines that are still used today uh, took 16,000 uh, men to build, to go up the, the middle of the country. Uh, one of them went over to the northeast, the other went uh, up into uh, a Chicago region. They were privatized after the war. So um, a lot of things began to happen after the war. 
Um, I would say there was a battle of light and darkness in Congress for the next several decades on uh, these issues um, related to the gas, oil, and electric industry. There were public interest advocates elected to Congress who really fought to keep these rules uh, in place. And there were many um, people elected to, co elected to Congress that were focused on actually just making a profit and were greedy. Um, the other thing that happened uh, during the war is uh, has just come to light in the last uh, couple of months, and that is that the American Petroleum Institute became concerned about the environmental damage uh, from um, fossil fuels. They formed a smoke and fumes committee that met for the first time at Chevron's office in L.A. in 1946. And what they um, did for the next several decades is um, contract with reputable scientists to do research on different environmental issues uh, related to using oil and gas not for the purpose of trying to protect people's health, but for the purpose of figuring out how to message uh, pollution. And I'm gonna get back to this in just, just a moment. Another thing, I mentioned uh, there were good people in Congress and uh, disreputable ones. Uh, this is just uh, one of the disreputable ones. Uh, Senator Kerr, he was the owner of uh, Kerr uh, Oil. Uh, he was elected in 1948. He was a uh, senator for uh, 15 years. He'd been a governor before that of Oklahoma. And uh, he saw his duty uh, into getting special benefits for the oil and gas industry. And uh, one of my favorites is the uh, Golden Gimmick, which gives a tax break to oil companies drilling in Saudi Arabia, still exists today. Uh, he was also uh, instrumental in getting the tax break that uh, oil and gas companies still enjoy today. Um, when they uh, take reserves out of the ground, they get to have a tax break um, based on how much oil and gas they're taking out of the ground. Uh, actually, the oil and gas industry basically uh, pays no federal taxes and gets, uh, um, you know, over time, um, huge amounts of money. In fact, it's hard to come up with an actual figure uh, of how much money they've gotten in subsidies uh, and tax breaks. Uh, another favorite of mine is uh, John J. McCloy. He played a role in many areas of public policy. He actually had played a role with um, every president between uh, FDR and Ronald Reagan. But much of what he did, he was a Harvard-trained lawyer, much of what he did was represent uh, the oil and gas industry in their attempts to either be exempt or to collude to not uh, have to obey antitrust laws. Basically, they wanted to be able to uh, fix prices, 
to engage in as many um, mergers and acquisitions as they wanted to get as big and as powerful as they wanted. And uh, there are actually thousands and thousands of pages of congressional testimony about their shenanigans uh, because there were actually some real investigations uh, during uh, uh, the 20th century that uh, actually came up with um, some of the facts about what they were doing. For instance, that meeting in Scotland that I uh, talked about, that came out in 1952 uh, when uh, some of the companies had to open up their books uh, and um, actually show what they had been engaging in. So um, we're going to move along now to what I think was a very important period in the oil and gas industry. Um, under uh, Richard Nixon, who was, of course, a, a, a big fan of the oil and gas industry, and uh, they were a fan of his, giving him literally suitcases of money uh, when he was being elected uh, to Congress. And he opened up uh, a lot of the coastal areas to drilling. Uh, he made appointments into some of the agencies that have that had a, an effect on oil and gas uh, regulations for decades to come. And I think one of the things that he did that we don't usually talk about is uh, one of his appointments to the Supreme Court, um, Lewis Powell. So... Um, you know, a lot of people think of Lewis Powell as a liberal today, and that just shows where the Supreme Court is uh, currently. But Lewis Powell was a, a corporate attorney in Richmond, Virginia. One of his biggest clients was the tobacco industry, of course. And uh, he... Uh, was very involved with the Chamber of Con Commerce. And before he went to the Supreme Court, he wrote a memo that I think is a marker, uh, an important marker into what's happened to our democracy. And I think it's important because it, it actually writes out a lot of the things that happened. I don't mean that this is some huge conspiracy. I think it's a conspiracy of uh, economic interests that act together and uh, uh, have uh, really hurt our democracy, and part of this cabal was the oil and gas industry. So what Powell did before he went to the Supreme Court was he wrote a memo uh, to the Chamber of Commerce that was focused on how to take back uh, the nation from liberal values, basically. And uh, he and his... Um, the people he was associated with did not like the state of affairs. They did not like that the Supreme Court had opened up rights to classes of people that did not have uh, rights um, previously. He didn't like the activism around uh, the uh, Vietnam War, didn't like the youth, youth culture, didn't like um, what he called the liberal media back when there actually was a more liberal media 
media, not what we have today. He didn't like Walter Cronkite getting on uh, the news and talking about um, the civil rights movement um, in uh, so many of the things that happened in Mississippi summer or uh, even Earth Day in 1970. So he wrote a memo about what it would actually take, a long-range plan. You can go on any browser and and uh, um, do PAL memo or PAL manifesto, and you can read this for yourself. But it lays out how um, how these institutions could be changed through long-term planning, um, through um, changing the way the university is funded um, by uh, companies getting together and using uh, their money to begin to uh, make some of these changes. And I think what really made him different is he didn't just talk about this. He went out and helped raise money to do this from the Koch family, from the Coors family in, in uh, um, Colorado, from the uh, Scaife Mellon family that owns Gulf uh, Oil, and um, one of the things that they did is, uh, over the next few years, they started about a hundred different right-wing institutions uh, like the Heritage Foundation that would really put out um, their vision of the future. And um, I think if you... If you really look at what's happened to our democracy, uh, you can see that the plan he laid out played a major role, and the oil and gas industry was really involved in this, along with a lot of other large industries like agribusiness, um, really wanting to... Um, change who benefits from uh, the structure of our economic system. So I'm going to move uh, along to the Carter administration because already by the Carter administration they were beginning to be able to uh, uh, use money to influence politics. And it was during the Carter administration that the Department of Energy was actually formed. Carter took all, he recommended taking all of the different functions from all of the um, parts of the federal government that had to do with energy and putting them in a single cabinet level agency uh, called the Department of Energy. And um, that would replace the Federal Power Commission that regulated natural gas with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that was really focused on helping um, helping the energy industry. And it's gotten a lot worse, which we're going to talk about. And also under the Carter administration, the legislation passed to deregulate the natural gas industry. And that's when we saw a lot of the pipelines beginning to uh, be built. We also saw um, by uh, the end of 1970s into the 1980s a lot of the federal rules being changed around the electric industry in preparation for deregulating uh, the electric industry, which has also incentivized natural gas. And a lot of the research dollars that went into not only renew renewables and energy efficiency, which I think Jimmy Carter is remembered for, but a a lot of the programs around shale uh, started under the Carter administration. Uh, there was a, uh, I'm just going to write up, uh, put up some of the uh, many um, 
pieces of research that federal tax dollars actually paid for through the years. Uh, as the print gets smaller, uh, the research is more recent. But the uh, um, shale drilling got a tax break uh, during uh, the Carter administration that uh, lasted for the next 15 years. It was a real incentive for some of the early fracking that took place by George Mitchell, which was actually paid for by the Department of Energy, the actual experimental fracking that took place. So um, I think this is one of the things where you can see how the oil and gas and dirty energy industry were able to shape public policy. Imagine if another uh, energy industry had been um, incentivized or uh, developed and not all of these uh, benefits uh, for uh, the oil and gas industry and the nuclear industry and coal industry as well. Uh, but um, what happened instead is this very powerful oil and gas industry was able, from their political power, to begin shaping the rules for the oil and gas industry, uh, exempting them from uh, all sorts of regulations. For instance, uh, uh, they were exempted in the uh, 19, uh, early 1980s from, um, from having to meet any requirements around radiation. So the oil and gas industry has always drilled deeply and brought up radioactive material, but it could be it could be disposed of uh, without even um, any safety rules around uh, radionucleoids. So lots of problems there. And I think allowing this industry to become so large so quickly, they had always, prior to the 1980s, had to try to sneak around antitrust laws because uh, they weren't the only industry that wanted to not have laws around monopolies, but they were one of a, a very powerful industry that uh, joined together in uh, selecting uh, President Reagan as their candidate, um, and it was during the Reagan administration that we really saw the evisceration of antitrust laws. So when President Reagan came into office, he appointed um, people to the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, whose job it was to basically um, get rid of uh, antitrust laws. And uh, this is a picture of President Reagan and Robert Bork. Some of you are old enough to remember Robert Bork, who he tried to appoint to the Supreme Court. Um, he was not successful, but I think Bork's footprint on our nation is um, just as heavy because he was a, uh, a right-wing legal scholar who did not believe in antitrust laws. He believed that efficiency could only be achieved through companies being as large as they desired. And, uh, and that's what happened under the Reagan administration. The, uh, the definition of an antitrust violation was narrowed uh, so greatly that um, it no longer really prevented monopolistic behavior. And we've lived with that ever since. Um, there's really been no interest um, um, 
by either political party to really um, even enforce the weak antitrust laws that are still on the, on the books. And um, I always like to pick on both political parties, especially during the political season. So um, I would say that what Reagan really began in these areas, um, President Clinton um, took a lot farther. And uh, a lot of the deregulation really took off under the Clinton administration. The electric utility, uh, the wholesale market for electricity, most people's eyes kind of glaze over when you ta start talking about the nuts and bolts of electricity. But rather than just having utilities uh, either buy the energy they needed for their customers or generating the energy that they needed for their customers, this whole gambling circus of having a wholesale electricity market where new entrants could come in, uh, build, um, of course, natural gas plants because they go up uh, quickly, um, and generate a whole lot more energy. And in fact, a lot of um, coal plants were taken out of mothball during this period, but regulations have now disincentivized coal, but uh, really incentivized natural gas, and it was really, uh, this electricity deregulation really took off under the Clinton administration. Um, the whole free trade agenda, which we know with uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which we hope will be defeated, um, has a real impact on energy and could be used against any community that uh, bans fracking or takes any protective measure for its citizens uh, because uh, it, it gives an unaccountable um, agency, basically, or unaccountable uh, global players, the ability to um, say what can happen, what kind of regulations can happen in a, um, a locality, at a state level, or um, in a nation. So very, uh, very problematic. The big oil and gas mergers really took off uh, under the Clinton administration, and of course, the, uh, some big media mergers. Things continued to get worse under the uh, Bush administration. Most of us know about the Halberton loophole and exempting um, the oil and gas industry from the Safe Drinking Water Act. But what we don't usually talk about is that's when that law, uh, the Public Utility Holding Company Act that restricted the behavior of uh, electric utilities uh, was repealed. So one of your favorite uh, utilities uh, Dominion, um, Dominion that started out as uh, Virginia Power, VEPCO, uh, now is uh, uh, a huge utility. In fact, it has the largest gas storage facility uh, of any electric utility, has operations in um, 
gas, in uh, nuclear power, uh, and has a gambling arm in the stock market. I mean, what we've seen from the elimination of uh, PUCA is basically 20 large utilities uh, that are much, we shouldn't even call them utilities anymore, energy companies have been formed that have enormous power and are partnering uh, with the natural gas and financial services industry. Um, and those 20 companies produce more than uh, half of the uh, electricity that consumers use today. The other thing that happened in this act is that uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, was given new powers, uh, the power to condemn land, uh, to go into states or localities and override um, state law. And they were uh, also given the power over one of our most important environmental laws, the National Environmental Policy Act, um, which would normally look at uh, these infrastructure projects and do a, uh, there would be a, uh, an environmental assessment. Now FERC has the authority to oversee these environmental assessments. And, you know, basically they've never seen a project uh, that benefits the, uh, um, the energy industry that they don't love. So this all happened in that 2005 act. Now, we all know that the Obama administration has not done what it should on um, oil and gas issues uh, and climate change. And a number of things have happened, including uh, shutting down the investigations in Pennsylvania, Wyoming, and Texas on water pollution. In fact, shutting them down right before uh, his last re-election. Uh, many, many things that should have happened under the Obama administration uh, did not, and uh, we've just seen this all-of-the-above strategy really promoted, and natural gas continue to be promoted uh, as a bridge fuel. So what, is that what has this left us with? Um, it's left us with some very large major oil and gas Companies, and you can see here what happened. On, on the left, you see at the very uh, left the seven sisters, and then you see how they've consolidated um, today. But each one of those little lines represents many, many other consolidations. So literally hundreds of uh, mergers and acquisitions that left these companies so powerful um, that they could rewrite rules around energy. Now that does not mean that there aren't other energy companies. There are other energy companies. There are many smaller contractors. There are many large frackers that have benefited from the way rules have been changed. But if you notice, uh, the 10 largest frackers, um, um, among the 10 largest frackers are those uh, four majors, uh, with Exxon being at the top. And what happens when prices are low, and uh, that's one of the things that really became clear to me in writing Frackopoly is, you know, prices are low today. That's always been the case. Boom, bust, boom, bust. Prices will go up, and what happens is during a, a bust, uh, the bigger companies get bigger. And 
one of the things that we really have to watch out for is um, how lots of natural gas power plants are being planned. And you can see uh, here how in many of the shale plays there are also uh, power plants uh, that are being uh, planned at the same time. So I know this is a dark story, but I really think we have to know the complexity and how we got here if we know how we're going to go forward to fight this. And I think, you know, the fighting the state by state is where we are today in trying to build um, the political power, enough political power to begin getting some federal champions uh, on this and to begin to actually take the action we need. And I, you know, and I think that's what the lesson is here. It's about holding our elected officials uh, accountable. And I think that what we're really seeing uh, over the past several years uh, around this movement is that um, people are really excited. People are getting involved, and, and not just on the East Coast. This is all across the country. And in fact, we know that that's how the issue of fracking became a major issue in the debate between Clinton and Sanders. It's, we have to keep the pressure up at the state level. Um, no matter who is the president, we need to have a strategy for uh, keeping this on the front burner and actually building power. And uh, I think we're making progress. Uh, you know, just this week we heard that uh, in Florida, we've been involved in Florida uh, on the uh, ban fracking campaign, and there are now... 16 big jurisdictions representing more than 70% of the population that have taken action, either a moratorium on, or a ban on fracking. Last year, we had to defeat a um, bad fracking legislation, successfully did that. It was bipartisan. And we've heard that there uh, has been so much pressure uh, put forth uh, on all of these local resolutions and bans that there won't be fracking legislation in the next um, leg legislative session. So, you know, there's a lot of progress, um, and we just have to uh, uh, keep our spirits up. This was the uh, activism that many of you were involved in, in winning a moratorium. I mean, who would have ever thought um, that there could be a moratorium uh, in Maryland during that period? Uh, now we know that there's going to be a ban, right? And, uh, um, um, and I just want to end by saying we are going to have a clean energy revolution because there are tens, hundreds of thousands of people that are going to make it happen. Uh, we were involved in the clean energy revolution march in Philadelphia, 10,000 people in 100 degrees heat um, uh, the day before the Democratic Convention started. People are ready to build this kind of power, and we have to keep our spirits up. We have to have the long eye. You know, it may not happen in my lifetime, but there are a lot of young people who are going to be impacted by this, and we all have to do our part uh, in our generation. So I am going to invite Thomas to come and say something about uh, the campaign, 
and uh, and then we're going to take questions and answers because this is really um, this is really an uh, event to build our energy and excitement about going out there. We have a lot of work to do, but we know we can do it. So, Thomas. Thanks. Um, we all learned a lot. I know that the book and the presentation gives a lot of really good background, like Winona said, to kind of help us learn how we got to where we are today so that we can learn how to, how to move forward as well. Um, so like Winona said, we have a moratorium on fracking here. Um, before I forget, a couple shout-outs for some of the folks who made that happen. Um, I just saw Elizabeth sneak out, but Ruth Alice and Elizabeth is right there. Uh, they're from a group in, in Howard County, Howard County Climate Action. Steve Mogi from Citizen Shales, a group in Western Maryland. Um, Tracy and Pam and others from a group in Hartford County. Um, Gina from Physician for Social Responsibility is back there. Um, we have a lot of our anti-fracking partners here tonight. Um, of course, we're going to take the momentum from the moratorium, and, and we've been pushing to pass a ban on fracking for the last, it's been about a year and a half now, I guess, since the moratorium passed. Um, we've had local victories in a few different places around the state. We passed a ban in Prince George's County. There was a ban in Montgomery. Anne Arundel County just came out with a ban. A couple towns in Garrett County, the town of Friendsville this summer, passed a ban. And, and different places are uh, passing resolutions, like Winona mentioned, you know, the same kind of thing that we've seen success with in places like New York and Florida. Um, a big, big part of, of what we need to do in, in many places, and especially here in Baltimore, where there is so much political power, is just to continue to build our own political power. Um, so reaching out to new organizations, new members of your community, bringing them into the campaign. Um, so I mentioned... Make sure you sign a blue petition postcard. We send these to legislators. We're going to deliver hopefully thousands of them during the next legislative session. Um, speaking of that session, one thing folks can do um, is take out your cell phone right now. I know everybody texts. Um, <laughs> and, and text to the number 69866, don't frack MD, all one word. Um, so this is a, a great tool. Some folks might have been getting texts from different political campaigns. Um, Food and Water Watch is able to use a, a similar tool basically to, to let people know um, right to your phone if there's an urgent action or event coming up. Um, some of our organizers in Colorado and in Pennsylvania um, have been able to, for example, bird dog uh, their governors who have been so bad on fracking and, and bring people together really quickly to, um, to hold their elected officials accountable. So we know that during the legislative session there's going to be a lot of events and actions. The session's only 90 days, and so we're going to be calling on folks to take action to come to Annapolis, to call their legislators. Um, so if you can get on this list, that's going to be the easiest way to stay up to date. We'll also send out emails and call you and do all that kind of stuff. But, um, but this will be really important. If you do send that text, it asks you to also send your zip code. So again, that just allows us to say, uh, for example, we're in the 43rd legislative district here. Um, if legislators in the 43rd district really need to hear from you, if we have your zip code, we can say, um, you know, give them a call or something like that. Like that. Um, so that's the info again. We've got it up out there as well. Um, and let me know if you have any questions. I think the last thing I'll say um, is just definitely talk to me or Rihanna. Rihanna, do you want to stand up? 
Rana's our organizer in Baltimore, um, who hopefully you will all now become best friends with. Um, and uh, we'll be working uh, on this campaign together. Um, talk to us afterwards. We'll be at the table with petitions. We've got some reports and stickers and that kind of stuff. Um, we also have Don't Frack Maryland yard signs, um, which are really nice and, and weatherproof. Um, if you can ship in five or ten bucks to, to pay for that, that'd be really great. And um, uh, we can spread the, the Don't Frack Maryland message. Um, I don't know if we got into this too deeply, but Food and Water Watch, along with some of the groups I, I mentioned earlier, are a part of this coalition that came together to pass a moratorium and is now working to pass a ban. And we now have about 120 uh, organizations, uh, sort of local, small local groups, state groups, and national groups um, working to ban fracking in Maryland. And it's going to be a, a really big fight uh, at the start of next year. Um, so if you have any questions about the Maryland campaign specifically, find us afterwards. Thanks. So we're going to take some questions now, but I just want to make a, a, a pitch. Um, it takes a lot of money to run these campaigns and to have a lot of staff and a state. So if you're a supporter of Food and Water Watch, we thank you, and we would love to have you as a supporter if you're not. So thanks so much for that. Um, let's move into questions. Are there any, any questions? I have the mic here, so. Mentioned early on that there were crops being grown in. Do I need it with my boy? Oh, you mentioned early that in California there were a number of corporations that were using the frac fracking water for to grow their crops. I, my husband and I have a ranch in Montana, and we've done touring. Uh, in the area and seeing the, the land that's dead. I mean, you couldn't grow a, a, a weed if you wanted to. So I'm, I'm shocked to hear that elsewhere in the country you can use this water that's poisonous and actually grow crops that end up in our grocery stores. That's frightening. Well, it's oil and gas waste. Most of it's conventional wastewater, but there, we believe, we have reason to believe that some of it's fracking wastewater. Yes, it is polluted water. Um, we understand that it's being, uh, um, recycled through the use of walnut shells to remove some of the, uh, the toxic materials. And, um, you know, there's no research on this. But these are counties that grow a lot of food, and usually they use water that basically comes from the delta that comes down in irrigation ditches. And that's how um, many crops are grown in California, but the drought has really uh, um, hurt um, agriculture, and they're desperate. So it's a good reason to not have oil and gas in the areas of our country where uh, we are growing crops. But a third of uh, oil in this, um, that comes from this country is from California, a third. They're the third largest producer of oil. Yes. Yes, I, let me put that slide up since it wasn't um, working before. I can get through here real. I have two slides. 
There's one of them, so you can look at that, and then I'll get the other one up. Uh, any other questions? Folks done with that? I'll... Um, I guess I also have a follow-up question to the last one that was asked, but first of all, I just want to thank you for the excellent information that you shared. I really gained a lot from learning that history, and I assume that the details of all of this are in your book, that this is yes. really what your book is about. Well, I definitely need a copy. That's really, really interesting. Um, so the question about using wastewater for agriculture, you said it's wastewater, but it also has fracking wastewater? Well, some... Um, some here, let me show you a picture. This is... Um, that's not the picture that I wanted to show you. That's from an earthquake in Oklahoma. Um, that's Chevron's Kern County field. This is a conventional field. Uh, we know of uh, another field in Coahuila County that has... that does some fracking. These areas are very proud that they're using this wastewater. This is not a secret. Um, the secret was who, what brands were using it. We did some research and figured out some of this. They call it recycling. They're proud of reusing the water. So there's a whole mindset here. Um, and uh, the LA Times did the first expose on this. Mm -hmm. We expected to see a follow-up expose, and there's never been another article. Of course, Chevron's headquarters are in LA. I have no knowledge of this, but I can put two and two together and figure that Chevron was not pleased um, um, with this um, expose. So I guess you know, my last question about that then is, who, if anyone, is doing testing of that water before it's used on the field to find out what kind of chemicals that we know are of concern in fracking wastewater? No one. In fact, the testing that was done uh, was done... Uh, everybody knows who Mark Ruffalo is. He has a group called Water Defense. Um, he um, had a researcher who was sent out... Uh, in fact, one of our staff helped him find one of the fields, and they did some testing. They gave it to the LA Times, who went with the article, and um, you know, it, it's never it's never gone anywhere. I mean, the state is not doing anything, but I mean, it's one of the we're trying to nationalize this. Uh, problem because I think most people, in fact, all the talks I've done around the country, I would say this is the one that gets the biggest um, response because people are really outraged, especially that Cal Organic uh, could be doing this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Got it. If anyone wants. Yeah. Yes. Uh Three fact checks, uh, and the first may be more to people here than to you specifically, but my understanding is Senator Cardin has signed on, uh, as one of six senators signing on for an investigation of the TPP in terms of its overriding of environmental legislation. Mitch, I mean, I mean, Mitch, uh, is this true? 
I, I heard this just today uh, from my wife, who's usually pretty reliable. But uh, yeah, it somebody deserves the thanks, and we should we should just find out about that. Yeah. Second second fact check. I understand that there is a National Association of Public Health administrators or something who have written a letter saying it's now definitive. It's a very definitive letter saying that fracking is a real risk to public health. Does anybody know about that? You, have you heard that? This is also recent. No. And the last fact check, but I, I mean, uh, Carbon Tracker first came up with it, then Lord Stern, and then uh, everybody, you know, they're keeping four-fifths of uh, petro uh, uh, resources in the ground, otherwise we fry the planet. That's, my understanding is that's impeccable research has been validated again and again by all the number crunchers. I'm just wondering, where does that stand in the Department of Energy? It's kind of like it's lost over here, and the conversation goes on as if that does not even exist. Do you know anything about how how that stands in this whole mix? Well, I think it would be an environmental protection agency that would do that research. I think they simply, well, I think there are a lot of good people at EPA, but the decisions are made politically through the White House, and that's what we've seen in the Obama administration. I just don't think there's any interest in really knowing the truth. I think they believe there will be technologies that can deal with climate change. Geoengineering, uh, they believe in these market mechanisms okay. which are just, um, you know, the trading that is, it, it, it's marked by fraud and, um, you know, it's, it's ridiculous that we would leave our planet to the financial services industry uh, to uh, dis decide how to fix the environment. But, but, no, Politics aside, is your understanding that that is, is there any serious scientific challenging of that uh, four-fifths? to be left in the ground. I mean... I mean, Emily, do you know? I, I haven't seen... I mean, I would say that what we've heard is that uh, the new oil change report basically says we have to stop all drilling um, because um, we've already used the budget. We've already used our budget up for emissions. So I think uh, oil change just came out with a, a national report. Um, which deals with um, the fact that basically drilling needs to stop now. There was also a new academic report published uh, earlier this year that says that we cannot build any more fossil fuel electricity infrastructure because we already, what's been built and what's currently being built means that if every other, every other greenhouse gas stopped being emitted, cows, <laughs> you know, cutting down trees, uh, landfills, whatever, every other stopped, the electricity uh, infrastructure that we have in place will be emitting enough greenhouse gases, the fossil fuel electricity infrastructure, to blow through the carbon budget. We can't build any more. So those two reports taken together really give the basis. Yeah, I mean, we already knew this, but they really give new uh, emphasis to the fact that we need to stop drilling. Now we can't issue any new permits is actually what oil change says. And we can't build any more fossil fuel infrastructure because we're locking ourselves in 
to a situation where climate chaos is going to become uh, inevitable. And we have a, a new blog, I wrote it, so I'm promoting myself, sorry, but a new blog on our website, foodandwaterwatch.org, where I talk about those and some of the other things that have recently come out. And that's for 400 parts per million, 350 parts per million? What, what I mean, we it's, say God for our budget. What's we're talking about, about uh, two degrees. Two degrees. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Let's make this the last question so we have time for books. Okay. What weight do reports like this have when you have a, a government where you have both legislative branches with, with naysayers? What do you mean climate change? No such thing. Well, I think it's why we're here tonight. We have to go out, go forward. What we can do in Maryland is ban fracking. And there are, there are citizen groups, there are um, groups all over the country working on their locality, on their particular issues. And that's what it's going to take. There's no silver bullet, right? We just, we have to go out there and we have to try to hold these people accountable. And part of it is the education. You know, and telling our friends and family and uh, um, not depending on um, our television sets to really get the message out there. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Thanks for all your giving. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.